Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Financial Father and Son podcast where we explore the various ways the younger generation can achieve financial independence. On today's episode, we're going to be covering Robert De Niro's financial situation and how he may have come under some sort of liquidity problem. We'll also cover how the S&P 500 is about to welcome Tesla into it. And we'll talk about catching up on missing years for the UK state pension. Timestamps are in the description of this episode, so please check them out if you'd like to skip to a certain topic. As per usual, I'm joined with my father. Hi, Dad. Hi, Jay. How are you? Good, thank you. You? Yep, good. So where do you want to start? Uh, yeah, well, the, the last uh, time we had a chat, we talked about pension in general. Um, but I think there is a very specific process for... Now, I'm talking about the UK market. For those people who are from the UK market, you know, who maybe left the UK uh, to work overseas or they are in the UK, but they didn't quite do all of their year's worth of contributions. Remember national insurance, it's it's a small subscription that they take from your pay packet. Mm. Now, so what happens is if, uh, you know, life gets busy and, and everything. And in our case, you know, we've been out of the UK for over a decade. So this is a few years ago, I investigated this and I didn't realize that I'd missed, you know, like 10 years of payments. And then, so that there is a, and it was really difficult. And I, I mean, I have to say to, to figure out how do I catch up? It was so confusing, so much uh, information rules because you go on HMRC website and it's a minefield. It's, yeah. Uh, so if I if I can just explain it to the audience real quick, um, the, the the kind of very quick uh, few steps that you can take, and the reason for this is is because look, you're going to get a state pension when you're 67, 68, um, and it is worth some money. So just to underlie the fact that when I f- first did all this, the state pension was about 160 um, a month. A week. Pounds. Pounds. It's now 175. Yeah. Okay. And so back when I was looking at this, this worked out to be like a, a annual pension of 5,200. Yeah. You know, with our 25X rule, um, so imagine that's you and, and uh, your wife, that's about 10,000. So that, it's, it's a fund value of about 200,000. Just before you begin the breakdown, mm. is there a penalty for repaying your missing years? Like, do you pay more if you have to, you know, repay 10 years of missing years versus if you just paid those 10 years as the years went by? There, there can be if you don't follow the conditions because they apply certain strict conditions. And if you missed that important information, they'll end up asking you to pay three or four times more per week to catch up. So just to, to recap, when I looked at the, what is the pension value today, state pension, it's now 175 a week. So multiply that by 52, times that by two, it's a maximum household income of 18,200. Now that doesn't mean that you'll automatically qualify for the full state pension because you've got to do the, the full 36 years of contributions. Yeah. And, and I started the conversation by saying I had some missing years. 
So you um, contacted HMRC, you called them up? I, I called them up, but I'm saying that right now, this is an implied value, a fund value of 455000 for a couple. And the math of that is, as my dad said, 9100 would be your individual full state pension, times that by two, because you've got husband and wife, which is 18200 and then times that by 25, if we're considering the 25x or 4% rule. Yes, of the full theoretical state pension now. Yeah. And you get four fifty five thousand. So yeah. it's it means you don't want to dismiss this. You know, we talked about index funds and doing your own system before and, and because, you know, you may want to not work all the way up to sixty seven, sixty eight, seventy, you know. Mm. Uh so so but you know, this is still valuable. This is still like uh, uh almost free money. Now let me explain the process. So what, I, what you have to do first is you have to log in to the um, HMRC website. So you get your unique username, password. You know, you've got to put in your national insurance number and all that. Um, the next thing to do then is you, you see what information is listed on the HMRC website and it actually shows you how many years you've contributed and, you know, what your possible pension could be. That is only an indication. You're then supposed to phone up the, it's called the UK Department Works and Pensions Future Pensions Team. That's a very specialised unit. You, you know, there, there is a telephone number for them. You phone them up and then what you do is you, you, have, to, um, you have to make an appointment and they don't call you back for a good one month or two months later. They are so busy. And I had to wait and be very patient. So then, then, you know, a couple of months go by, they phone you up. And by then, they've done a complete kind of background on yourself, on your wife. What did you pay? What's, uh, how many missing years you have? And what's the implied value? And then they go through the process of saying, well, look, if you want to uh, catch up on those missing payments, you have to pay according to class two or class three national insurance contributions. So when, when you were working... If, if you were paying, say, class two, uh, at that time that I phoned them, it was £150 a year. It's about £3 a week. But class three uh, is £740 a week. This was a few years ago data. So this is the contributions you make so that you get a state pension? To, to catch up. To catch so up. So let's okay. say I have 10 missing years. If I pay... 10 years worth of class two, that's £1,400. If I pay, yeah. you know, 10 years worth of class three, that's 7400 Wow. It'll be more now. Yeah. But what they say on the phone is, oh, you know, you can pay class three. Um, and then you have to kind of say, no, but hang on, I think I qualify for class two because when I left the UK, I was working yeah. If you left the UK, but you were, say, self-employed, or I think, you know, you weren't working, and then you went to live somewhere, I think you automatically, they they put you down as class three. Mm. So, but imagine the people who did leave the UK who were working, and then who wanted to do pensions catch up, and by mistake, they end up paying class three. They end up paying yeah. for every missing year, 700, 800 pound a year. I ended up paying 150 pound a year for every a missing very- year. Cheap, well, not cheap, but it's it's less than I thought you'd have to pay for missing years, mm. because like if you're saying that, well, they, well, you do, and I did, you see, I, I, but I paid, I paid what fifteen hundred quid. Yeah, but so like if you 
say your pot size of four fifty five thousand pounds and four percent of that would return eighteen thousand two hundred pounds, which is the state pension. The alternative to contributing your missing years is building up a pot of four hundred fifty five thousand in say a Vanguard account or something. Um, you know, and if you do it through the state pension route or through HMRC or whatever, you paid what did you pay? I paid fifteen hundred to catch up on ten years worth. So instead of having say twenty six years worth out of thirty six, I I pay for the missing ten years so I get the full. That means that I could qualify for the full state pension at sixty seven. What was your total contributions, do you think, roughly, over your career on the UK and the missing years? Oh I it's a percentage of your income. I couldn't work that out now. But roughly, really. what would you say? It wouldn't. It was less than four fifty-five k, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So maybe a hundred k or what? something like that. Less even. If someone's, let's say, let's pick a, a, a annual income of say fifty thousand pounds and say that over th- thirty years, yeah, what would that be? One point five million. Yeah. And let's say the national insurance contribution is, I don't know, five percent. So what what uh, of your pay packet? So what's five percent? Seventy five thousand. So you are you're paying well less, yeah, than the fund value. You know the implied fund value. So this is this is why this mechanism of the if you are lucky to come from a country that has a state system, yeah, it is worth contributing and and it's it, you mustn't ignore it. Yeah. Now I did the very same thing that mental exercise. I worked out that hang on so. What's the extra amount that, what's the option that I'm buying when I hand them over 1500? Yeah. I worked it out. And so they, they gave me a figure, 100 and whatever it was uh, a week. And then what was the extra amount that this, you know, um, buying 10 extra years would, should deliver, should yield? And it works out to be over 10% the rate of return, hmm. the cumulative rate of return between now. And when, let's say, I hit that age, yeah, you are making a bet. You don't know how long you're going to live, yeah. right? And but you're kind of this is all about planning, right? But so, yeah, there, like you said, you can't take this money before you're 67, isn't it? Correct. So you're you you can't. It's and, not like a Vanguard account. It's not like Vanguard. I can't, you know, sort of knock on the door and say I want it now. I've got to wait. Is there early? Is there a penalty if you do that or you cannot do that? Because in the US, like with the four hundred one k, I think it's fifty nine and a half or something. You can withdraw, but you get yes. charged ten percent penalty if you want to take money out before that. Yes, I think there there is a huge penalty for taking out money before, and you have to pay tax on the money you take out. So it ends up being some terrible um, payout. Yeah. If you, I think it's something crazy. Like you end up losing thirty or forty percent. Out of if you if you took a hundred k out of your you know US account, yeah. But let's focus on the UK one. So on the UK one, I cannot. You cannot. The, the state pension has a minimum age. They they decide it. So obviously you've got to, you know, live to that age, and and prosper beyond that. Okay, because and, and and you want to be in good health and and carry on and whatever the life expectancy is you see uh so look all i'm saying is that there is a process you can do it you have to be a bit patient with it you have to phone hmrc and they will be there to assist you you just gotta you know you've got to plug yourself into a appointment system and then uh, see how you can best fill that uh, gap 
How many uh, hours did it take your phone calls to get it uh, from start to finish? It was a few hours. I mean, it was a few hours of effort. It was, you know, lots of reading on the website. But once you're logged in, once you see your information, once they call you back to confirm this is your information, because they do a, 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 a secondary check. Yeah. Uh, as you know, everything on the website for you that you log into may not always be correct. Hmm. I mean, the HMRC has to double check and, and verify. But they are very helpful and very friendly, uh, the future pension team. And then you got, I got the letter and then I think I, I sort of, you tick the boxes to say I, I elect to um, have these payments taken from my bank account. Yeah. So what they do every quarter now for, for, for ongoing for future years, they just take it from my uh, account every quarter. So the past years you missed, you paid in lump sum? Past years I missed, I paid in lump sum that I was allowed to catch up on. I think it was like nine years out of the 11. Yeah. Or whatever. And then just to ensure that I reach the maximum contribution of 36 years. Yeah. I mean, they're going to just, you know, every for the next few years, they're just going to keep taking from my bank. And it's very affordable. Yeah. Because it's what I told you, it's like a, a few quid a week. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's, a, that's, I think that's a great investment. I did work it out. It ends up being between 10 and 15% uh, compound interest or compound return. But then it all, it all depends on how long you live. Because if Correct. you only live, you know, a year after your pension starts, then you've made all those contributions for one year of, con one year of pension payout. Uh, yeah, that's you right. Know? I mean, look, you're making a, a, a bet. Uh, it's, it's, everything's an option. Yeah. I mean, nothing's certain in life, so... Uh, the best you can do is plan, right? So, yeah. I mean, that, that's why we're here. When was the state pension age when, like, when you were growing up, when you were starting your career? Because now you can start taking your pension when you're 67, right? But maybe 20 years ago, what was it? Uh, well, I think it was 60, 60 years old. Okay. Um, so do you think in the next 20 years it's going to go up to 70s or something like that? Well, this is how you, would, this is how you make sure that the, the pot uh, or the, uh, the claims for state pension remain affordable, inverted commas. Uh, because it, uh, when you get too many people making claims, that's real money that is being put into people's uh, accounts. And where does that come from? It, it, it doesn't come, the government doesn't have this investment fund Hmm. The government's taking money from where? From the people who are working, from companies who are working. It all goes into one big tax pot. Yeah. And then they've got to sort of divvy it up, you see. Uh, so now if you get more and more uh, uh, aging population, obviously the demand for pension payments go up, goes up. So what, how can you adjust for that? Well, you just keep increasing the age. Yeah. And they've done that. I mean, for women now it's 65, I think, or... Maybe it's aligned with. Uh, I mean, I, I don't. I haven't looked at the details. You know, all I know is that how can I optimize this? You know, and. and but this isn't to say that um, just rely on the state pension. This is to say this is like an extra. It's like an easy, not easy way, but a cheap kind of way to get a bit more income when you're older. But still do the. You're saying still do the Vanguard and the private pension. You build yourself properties or whatever. If you, if you want to retire early, unless you say, okay, yeah, I want to retire at seventy or eighty, whenever the government allows me to. Yeah, yeah. Look, the old school was there was nothing else but the state pension. Okay, but I think for later generations, they got all these options and choices, and 
they ended up, you know, working overseas, then you end up kind of losing track of what what you were entitled to in your home market. Mm. Uh, Also, I think I remember at work uh, for the different jobs I did, they would say, do you want to be enrolled out of state earnings related pension or do you want to, you know, stay enrolled? And you you can never remember what box you ticked. Mm. Uh, So... So many things, many things, uh, but I think it's worth it. I think it's this all goes back to you know do an audit, you know figure out what it is, you know your, your income, your outgoing, your assets, your liabilities. You've got to know where you are, and you've got to know where you are in terms of your investment funds. You know the the, the things that are going to give you an income. If if you don't have that idea, you're just going to assume that your plan is to just keep working, you know, that, that default option, which I've mentioned before. Anyway, look, that's just to catch up on that uh, previous topic, um, which we did discuss. All right. So next let's talk about something that was in the news recently, personal finance related, which is about Robert De Niro and his lawyers saying he's come under some sort of financial strain. And obviously this kind of struck headlines in the personal finance world. It was all over Twitter. Um, few people saying oh he's bankrupt he ain't got money but it was his lawyer that said something his lawyer said look to the judge mr de niro doesn't have cash his yeah that was the thing he so didn't on. have the money mm. um and th- he had to pay what investors half a million dollars i don't know what do you know which investors was it for was it for it the was restaurants his restaurants yeah because obviously with covid they've, they've had to shut them haven't they or they did shut them yeah it says Nobu made a $3 million loss in April and 1.8 mm. or 1.9 million in May loss. So it seems like it's more of a liquidity problem than mm. a, a bankruptcy problem. It's a narrative to explain to the court that, you know, I, we can't uh, increase this uh, request from 50 to 100 because of X, Y, and Z. Mm. And the question is, I don't know what the loss means. I mean, that, does it literally mean you kept all your staff, you didn't furlough, furlough them, but you're paying rent on the, and, you know, on the yeah. real estate and you're paying you know, uh, fixed costs and so on for the, the restaurants? Because Nobu's a very high-end restaurant, so they're going to have locations in like central London, in New York, and like right in the most expensive areas. I think Tokyo as well. Yeah, he's got a few. It's, every, it's globally yeah. everywhere, yeah. I think. Yeah. Even, you know, Middle East and... Yeah, everywhere. So another thing in the article, it says he'll be lucky to make $7.5 million a year, which shows that no matter how much you make, it's about how much you're spending, isn't it? How much you keep. Yeah, if you if you spend all of that, you've got nothing. You've not built anything. Yeah. I mean, and what if you spent more than $7.5 I mean, $7.5 million sounds great, but it depends who you're talking to. Yeah, if you've got high expensive lifestyle, then... It's, uh, yeah, a rich man, someone who's earning, you know, 50,000 pounds, but can live off 30,000 pounds is richer than someone who's, you know, earning 7.5 million, but who's spending 7.5 million. Yeah, exactly. And obviously I think though with these, these kind of stars and business people, I mean, they do have large uh, staff and teams supporting them and companies. And so... You know, who's to say 
who makes what money? You know, yeah. is it he that makes it? Is it the companies that make it? You know, I mean, when you when you write a check to nobody, I don't think you're writing a check to Robert De Niro. Um, no, he's just. A, I think he's a co-owner or part yeah. owner of because it's also the chef, Chef Nobu. What's interesting about all these people who fall into the you know entertainer category or sports category? These are really prolific, uh, highly paid athletes, uh, and we can think of so many. Yeah, that they make so much money, but. But from time to time, you you hear of some some of them having sort of financial difficulties, and then also when they retire, when they stop, you know, acting, or when they stop uh, playing football, or you know, their, their main sport, then the you know the, the, their income dries up, but they've got nothing left over, and, and you wonder yeah. where did it all go? Uh, what happened? I mean, and and that's that's I think that's very difficult. Uh, there's so many. Um, public cases of this and, and you do wonder can they not be um, taught this, can they not be given some kind of insight into why it's so important to... I think they are control. nowadays, like the younger, I was reading in the, the NBA, a lot of the younger guys who are on you know, big amounts of money, mm. um, they're not used to that large amount of money uh, but they are giving financial help I don't know if it's the NBA who provide it or mm. um, other stars, other like of the the older generation NBA stars who are helping these younger guys, you know, with their finances, you know, not spending it all straight away and building something up. Yeah, that's right. And and you know, I think same with the UK Premier League. You know, do do those athletes do they do they have people coming in and giving them a kind of weekly or quarterly, you know, seminar or lecture? Because it it can't just be one time. It's it's uh, you're socialising a kind of good sense and governance into your you know um, daily life, yeah. And this then gives them the tools to to decide how to manage their money, where to put the money, you know, what's an investment, because sometimes also they put their money into crazy schemes because they get persuaded. It's a lot because they've got high income, yeah, and they're. They're not used to this money. They get targeted by all these so-called advisors who are literally just taking their money through fees mm. and, and giving them bad investment advice. So it is a bit scary in that sense. But then it's not like the money's being lost in the, in the system and the economy. It's just a wealth transfer, isn't it? It's a wealth transfer, yeah, absolutely right. It's just like they say about the stock market is a, a wealth transfer from the impatient to the patient. Mm. You know, that's why we do index funds. Yeah, that's right. There's there's going to be people out there. They're gonna, you know, they're 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 like sharks. They are going for who's got the money. Yeah, and they can smell who's got the money. You know, and they they will circle like uh, uh, like vultures. Yeah, but back to the Robert De Niro thing. I think you said this in a conversation we had. He's probably got stuff in the Cayman Islands or <laughs> somewhere hidden, so he just doesn't want to declare that. Well, I, yeah, I don't really know what uh, what the, the truth behind all it, all of that is. But look, the, the thing to, to bear in mind is that, you know, when, when you've been working for 30, 40, you know, in his case, he's been, I mean, he's in his 70s. So imagine the body of work, imagine all those movies, imagine all those contracts where you get royalty, you know, you get an income every time his movie's shown because yeah. he's the artist. And, you know, it's a funny thing. 
all these artists and authors, you know, they get royalty from writing books or making movies. I mean, not all of them, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the big stars, they, they, they know how to negotiate such matters. And, and then they, that's why they still make a huge amount of income even when they stop acting. Yeah. The money is just flowing in. And I think that for the normal person, you're kind of like mimicking this because you're saying, well, what can I do to replicate my income? Well, I could just buy a slice of every company in the stock market. Yeah, that's actually just a good analogy. Actually. And, and, and that's how, okay, I'm no movie star, I'm no author, but what if I understand what the 4% rule is or 3% rule, you know, if you want to be more cautious, what if I build up a fund um, that will be used to finance my lifestyle? Yeah. That's it. That's your, um, you know, perpetual money-making machine. Mm. And, and that's kind of the way the smarter members of the entertainment industry and, and the sports industry, you know, when they make, contractual arrangements they they get royalty off their images they get royalty off their intellectual property yeah and or with movies you know they'll get royalty every time a movie is shown or uh, obviously the uh, pop stars yeah singers and, and whatnot um every time a song is played that's uh, income that is a, a definition of investment so i think long story short he's he's all right robert de niro <laughs> he'll I be think fine he'll be fine you know, I think he'll be fine. Um, like I said, my, when I look at stories like this, I just go immediately to the credit card limit um, request of going from fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a month, and I just think, how can a single person spend that much in a month? I, I just think that's. Uh, but that's from our point of view. Like mm. people got when you're in that circle or those circles, you're going to have some big expenses, you know, um, security, the mansion, mansion, lifestyle creeps. Maybe it is a bit of keeping up with the Bodyguard, Joneses. What can you do? Gardeners. It's a different, it's drivers, a different lifestyle. Cooks. Yeah. And that's the, all those trappings go with the, the bigger the house, the bigger the traps. I mean, that's, uh, that's why we said in one of our earlier episodes that your main house is, it's not an investment. It's a, it's a, it's a liability. You've got to support that house. Yeah. Finally, let's touch on the kind of trending topic which was happening over the last couple of days, which is Tesla uh, about to enter the S&P 500, I guess at the next quarterly meeting with uh, Standard & Poor's or whoever really decides. What's your take on that? What do you think of that? Because we were talking about Tesla a few months ago mm. and even last year, we were looking at the price of Tesla at $300 a share and Back then, we were saying, oh, it's a bit too expensive still. Should be buying. And what is it now? 1600 1600 <laughs> I mean, that's just crazy. Look, I mean, it sounds great. And if you could go back in time, but you can't. And that's the problem with hindsight. So what you, what you do is you say, well, I'm a defensive investor. That's why I buy index funds. If Tesla makes it into the S&P, great. I'll end up, you know, that'll be one of the companies I own. I think, you know, we have, I don't know, nearly 10,000 companies in our eight funds. So 10,000 companies globally and probably we do own Tesla somewhere. Yeah. Because it's not, it might not be in the top 500, but it might be in the Russell 
1000 or the Russell 2000 or whatever. Mm. So the way to look at this kind of news is to say is is maybe not to react and just realize that whatever companies go into the index or drop out of the index, um, I'm not really affected. And uh, from a speculative point of view, obviously we don't promote speculation, but I just can't see Tesla holding its value it's at now. Like it's it's not on every you know checklist for a solid investment. It doesn't meet that criteria. What was the market cap you said earlier? It's like. 295 billion or whatever and like the PE ratio is like I think they just reported profits yesterday or a couple of days ago mm. and the PE ratio is like thousands mm. that's mm. and then for anyone that doesn't know um, you know from what Ben Graham says the, in the intelligent investor anything above 20 for a PE ratio is a bit expensive um, yeah it's so, not it's not providing any income to investors yet Tesla so it's it, the price earnings ratio so you take the, the price is the market value of the company. Or just it's per share, so 1,600 divided by earnings per share. Okay, okay, divided by earnings per share. It's yeah. all, also the same thing, I suppose, as uh, if you take the price times the number of shares divided by the... Yeah, it's the, all the same thing. Same thing. Now, that's interesting you say about Ben Graham because, if, you know, I'm still reading the John Bogle book uh, and, and it talks about, you know, uh, data that goes uh, for a hundred year period. Yeah. And he says, it. of course, it oscillates price earnings ratio and the price earnings ratio, this this is just the, um, the higher the PE is a reflection of what people are willing to pay for a stock. Yeah. The higher the, the yeah. higher the PE. So if you have a, a 20 PE versus a, another company with a 10 PE, that means people are more willing to to trade that, that stock with the 20 yeah. or the 30. They're, they're more interested in it. Yeah. And that's speculation. But when you, when you then go deep into the 100 years worth of data, uh, and according to Bogle, that you know, the, for 100 years, the annual return of companies, so this is the dividends and income, amounts to 9%. Uh, 9%. Mm. And then the, there's another chart that shows speculative activity impact on share prices. And when you average that out for 100 years, it's half a percent. So actually, the 9 plus 5 is 9.5. Yeah. And, and so 9.5 is the market yeah. performance on average for 100 years. And so it depends if you want to be defensive or it depends if you want to be enterprising. And there's nothing wrong with either. It's just that if you're defensive, then you're more going down the, the, the rabbit hole of index funds. Yeah, It's passive. You just uh, feed new money into the market every month. You've got your plan, you know, which started when you started work, hopefully, um, or not long after, and and you're just going to build your fund up for 10, 20, 30 years. And the more you put in, the better you're collecting units. Or if you're enterprising, you're, you're saying, well, no, I, I can, I, I'm going to try to beat the market. I'm going to try to do something. I'm going to try to stock pick. And, you know, I, We've talked about this, how I'm, I'm useless at stock picking. And I, I, the, the moment you come up with a, an idea for a company, I, I, 
I just wouldn't be able to make a decision. And I think, I think in the past I just gave you a little bit of play money and you went ahead and sort of set up a broking account. And actually you were lucky, you, you picked some, some, a couple of good companies. But that means you're watching it every day and you know, you're riding that, uh, that stock market wave. It can add a bit more fun to the game, you know, because mm. passive investing is very boring. If you, if you're, for being honest, you know, it's 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 not exciting. It's the best way to do it, in our opinion, um, mm. but it's it's not the most exhilarating. So, if you want to add a bit of fun to it, you could, you know, say, all right, five percent or even a bit less than that, or whatever is comfortable for you. Yeah. You can stock pick. You um, could like one percent. I, I I'd be, I'd look at my whole wealth and say, yeah, I'm willing to you know, drop 1% yeah. into this sort of enterprising aspect of it. Because it can be fun too, because I, I do remember doing that. Obviously, you, you're, it's not on your side to win mm. because you're betting your money in a few companies or whatever, but it is it adds a bit of fun to the game. And it's not too difficult really to pick a, a company that's good. You know, if, they're, if their PE ratio is not crazy high, you know, if they're a solid company, if they're kind of undisruptible and there's high barriers to entry um, in the industry, then you've got a kind of sound company. Mm. Um, but then most of your money, we'd say, put it into just index funds because it automatically rebalances. You've always got the best companies and over time you will win against the person who's, you know, continuously picking and changing their mind because they have to pay transaction fees. They have to, you know, trust that they are, right which is wrong most of the times or which they are wrong most of the times and that's just a way of trading that's just what happens well this is from the book the same book he said that uh, index funds or the the, the benchmark 96 percent of all fund managers or all funds in that medium term or long whatever the time period was ended up falling uh, short of the benchmark of the, the S&P or S &P. the market. So yeah. you would have just been better off with it with an index fund that had, I think Vanguard in the UK, it's like 0.07%. And I think in America, it's even cheaper, 0.04%. And on that point of the managed funds, you're saying that they don't beat the market, yeah? That's only for a certain number of years of data because what these funds do, these hedge funds that lose money, they'll just change their name or... Um, close the fund down and then the fund manager will go and start a new one mm. so there's no you know that track record of that that fund manager is just restarted again so you're not even seeing a full accurate view of how he's doing and how the they're managing how their their management of you know buying and selling companies is doing over you know a longer period of time of what you'd have in the market say 30 40 years yeah look and and i said 96 percent of the time apparently that means 4% of funds did beat the benchmark. But how are you going to pick 4%? How are you going to pick, pick 4 And Bogle said that the, um, the premium that you were betting on, on average, was 0.6%. So now you just do a simple weighted average, all right? Just imagine... What do you mean the premium? The, pre the extra premium over the benchmark that you earned by betting with an oh, active fund manager. Yeah. So now... Or just do an expected value. It's 0.96% times 9.5%, which is the market. Yeah. And then 4% times 0.6%. It's not worth it. The it's risk outweighs not worth the reward. It because you're going to be paying 1, 1 or 
And those funds will probably close down. You know, if you're in there for five years, they're winning. Then the next five years they lose. Mm. They'll close their funds down. You have to then choose more funds. And it's just a, a headache. If you just put everything into passive funds, you put it into the market, it, you just auto-correct it, auto-corrects itself if you do it through someone like Vanguard. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button to keep up to date to when we upload future episodes. We started off by talking about UK pensions and how you can catch up on your state pension if you have missed some payments. We then covered Robert De Niro and how he is going through a sort of liquidity crisis. We both agree that he'll probably be fine. Finally, we covered how Tesla looked to be entering the S&P 500 and what our thoughts are on that. You've been listening to The Financial Father and Son, where we explore the various ways the younger generation can achieve financial independence. Take care, guys.